Let's take a Bible and open it. Second Samuel chapter 6, if you would, in the Old Testament. We're going to continue in our study of the life of the great man of God, David. Second Samuel 6. And if you didn't bring a Bible today, how about borrowing the copy of the Bible that we have for you right on the back of the seat? We're going to be on page 218. Page 218 of our copy of the Bible. Or Second Samuel 6 in your copy. You know, I have been, since I, for the last 18 and a half years, I've been here at McLean and I take appointments on Tuesdays. Somebody wants to come in and see me on a Tuesday, they can come in. used to be Tuesday afternoon, now I do it Tuesday morning, some too. And uh, they can talk about anything they want. You know, it's your half hour, your hour, whatever you want to talk about. Want to talk about, you know, the weather, whatever, that's fine, we'll talk. And uh, so, but over these last 18 and a half years, I've been trying to keep a mental record of what's the number one most common thing I talk to people about. And 18 and a half years later, the winner is hands down. I mean, what's, what's in second place isn't even close. The number one most common issue that we discuss with people in my office are relationships. And usually not relationships that are going great, if you understand what I'm saying. Now, deteriorating relationships are a chronic problem in our world. We have Donald and Ivana. We have Donald and Marla. We have Princess Di and Prince Charles. We have Sonny and Cher. We have Liz Taylor, who eight times has picked up her Gucci bag and gone home. We have the Beatles, who can't, couldn't make their relationship work. The Supreme, Simon and Garfunkel, Fleetwood Mac, Guns N' Roses, none of them could make their relationship work. We have uh, Katzenberg and Eisner at Disney, couldn't make their relationship work. Those of you who remember what you read in high school, we have the Montagues and the Capulets, who couldn't make their relationship work. And of course, we all know about the Hatfields and the McCoys, of course. Now, you know, the world is, uh, the, the problem rather is not just limited to people who are out in the world, secular people. I mean, we as Christians face the same struggles with relationships that everybody else faces. We all know about Sandy Patty and the breakup of her marriage. We know about Charles Stanley and how his uh, relationship with his wife went through a very rocky time a couple years ago. There are people today, many Christian leaders, who still will not sit on the same platform as Billy Graham. Their relationship is so poor. So we as Christians are certainly not immune from having relationships that deteriorate. What we want to talk about today are some principles that God gives us as Christians about how to deal with and how to restore relationships that are falling apart, that are deteriorating. And we want to use a little story from an incident from the life of David as kind of a staging area. And then we want to go off and talk about this. So let's look together. 2 Samuel chapter 6, a little bit of background. King David has finally succeeded in getting the ark and bringing it to Jerusalem. And he's, uh, he's dancing before the ark, leading this huge parade into the city of Jerusalem. And as the Bible is telling us about this, it comments about a relationship in David's life that, as you are going to see, was a very decaying relationship. Look with me, if you would, 2 Samuel chapter 6, and look at verse 16. It said, and as the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, watched from a window. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. Whoa, now that's a strong word. She despised him in her heart. What do we know about this woman, Michael? Well, we know she was the daughter of King Saul. We also know she was the first wife. She was David's first wife. She loved this man deeply. She met him right after he'd killed Goliath and they got married. 
She put her own life on the line when they were newlyweds to save his life, letting him down through a window and lying to her father and deceiving her father to protect his life. That's how much she loved him. And Saul was furious with her, so angry that what he did to punish her is he took her away from David and he gave her to another man as this other man's wife. The fellow's name was Paltiel. And for nine years, David lived out in the, uh, the wilderness as an outlaw, and, uh, and she didn't hear from him, she didn't talk to him, she didn't even get an email from him over the next nine years. Nothing. No contact at all. But when David was finally able to flex a little bit of muscle nine years later, I want you to see what he did. Turn back a chapter or two to 2 Samuel 3. 2 Samuel chapter 3 and look at verse 14. In verse 14, David said, he said, um, let me turn myself here, I'll flip my page. 2 Samuel chapter 3 verse 14. He, then David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, demanding, Give me my wife Michael back, I want her back, whom I betrothed to myself for the price of a hundred Philistine foreskins. That was the price that Saul required. David said, I went and got it, I married this woman, and nine years later, I want her back. Now, does it strike you as interesting that he didn't even ask whether she wanted him back? Does it strike you as interesting that he didn't even consult with her to find out if she felt like she wanted to leave her husband that she'd been living with for nine years? Does that strike you as interesting? He said, this is my piece of property, at least that's how we treated her, and I lost her nine years ago and I want her back. And frankly, I don't care what I do to her existing marriage. She's mine. I want her back. Next verse. Verse 15. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband. And her husband, verse 16, went with her, weeping behind her all the way for her to meet David. Now you get the picture. Here they're leading his wife away to go meet David and be David's wife again. And her husband of nine years follows her, weeping and wailing as she goes. Does it impress you that maybe these two people liked each other? Does it impress you that there was some affection between them? Does it impress you that they got along and there was some real love between them? And yet, without so much as a how do you do, David snatches her away from this guy and makes her his own wife again. By the way, David already had remarried a woman named Abigail, so he already had a wife. He didn't need her back to have a wife. He had a wife already, but he wanted her back because it was an ego thing. And it says at the end of the verse, verse 16, that Abner, the general, said to him, to the husband, you better go back if you know what's good for you. And so he went back. Now, in light of that kind of treatment, does it surprise you that there might have been just a tiny bit of angst between this woman and David? Does that surprise you? It doesn't surprise me. And, and that's what explains some of this despising of him in her heart that she felt. Well, let's see how the relationship ended. Turn back to chapter 6 and we'll conclude this. It says in the end of the chapter that when David came home, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, there was a horrible confrontation between her and David. She was very sarcastic. David was very sarcastic. You could tell there wasn't a whole lot of love lost between the two of them. And then the last verse of the chapter, verse 23, And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children till the day of her death. I'm assuming this is because David was never intimate with her again until the day of her death. And he left her barren as a way of punishing her because this was the the greatest disgrace a woman in Israel could ever face, the disgrace of being barren and having no children. This is the last time the Bible ever mentions Michael. And, and what an incredibly sad ending 
to a relationship that began so well. She really loved this guy. She risked her life for this guy. And this is the way it ends. I think that's really tragic to see a relationship end like that. Now, that's the end of the passage, but it leads us to ask the most important question. And you know what that question is, so I'm going to give you a chance to say it, to ask it. Ready? One, two, three. Wonderful. That's wonderful. You say, Lon, so what difference does this make to me? I mean, I feel sorry for this gal, Michael, and you're right, David didn't do such a good job of treating her right. But you know what? I got one wife. I'm not looking for a second one. This is never going to happen to me. So what's the deal here? I mean, you know, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. When I was growing up, my mom had all these little aphorisms she used to love to use. You know, little statements, little, little mottos. One of them she used to use all the time is she used to say, you know, familiarity breeds contempt. Now, I didn't have one clue as a kid what that meant. Not one. The only word I even came close to understanding was breed. The other two, I had no clue what they meant. So I, I grew up and I never knew what that meant. Then I got married and Brenda and I got familiar. And then I began to understand what my mom was talking about. What my mom was trying to say was, you know, relationships are hard. It is hard to make relationships work. And the closer the relationship is, the harder it is to make it work. That's what she was trying to say. And my mom was right. Now, the reason for this is very simple. We're all sinners. We're all selfish. We're all self-centered. We are all self-directed. We are all flawed. And we are all full of warts all over. In fact, you know, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, when I was contemplating whether I wanted to do that when I was in college, one of the most amazing parts of the whole thing was not just the idea that God would die on the cross to pay for my sins. I mean, I, I, you know, that was pretty amazing, but I could, I could appreciate that. Or not that, that God wanted to give me eternal life. I said, okay, I can appreciate that. That makes some sense. The most amazing part to me of the whole deal was that Almighty God, perfect God, holy God, with no warts on Him at all, wanted to have a relationship and be in relationship with me. That was the amazing part. Knowing all my weaknesses and knowing all of my shortcomings, the fact that Almighty God would want a relationship with me was, the, to me, the most amazing part of the whole thing. And friends, if you're here and you've never trusted Jesus Christ in a personal way, let me say to you, God wants a relationship with you. With all your warts and with all your weaknesses, He wants a relationship with you because He loves you. Now, don't ask me why He loves you because in 28 years I haven't been able to figure out why He loves me. But I'm just telling you, He does. And one of the most wonderful things about trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Messiah and Savior is not just that you get forgiveness of sins and not just that you get to go to heaven, but that you come into a personal connectedness and relationship with the living God. And you know, those relationships always work because you don't have one flawed person and, one not, and, and another flawed person. You have a flawed person and a perfect person. That relationship works. It will change your life to be in relationship with Almighty God. And I can't think of a better time to make that decision than at Christmas time. I hope you'll think about it. Well, for those of us who are Christians and are in that relationship with God, you know what? It's interesting when you become a Christian, when Jesus Christ comes into your life, all the warts in your life don't go away. God doesn't sprinkle supernatural compound W all over you, and all of a sudden you got no warts anymore. It doesn't happen like that. We remain sinners. And folks, I'll tell you why relationships are hard. You take two sinners and you squeeze them into a sardine can together, and you're going to have conflict. 
You put two sinners in the sardine can of marriage together, you're going to have conflict. You take two sinners and you put them in the sardine can of living all under one roof as brothers and sisters and moms and dads, you're going to have conflict. You take two sinners and you squeeze them together in the same office, cubicle up next to cubicle, and you're going to have conflict. You take two sinners... And you put them together in the same house as roommates. You take two sinners and you put them in together in the same school with hundreds of other sinners. You take two sinners and put them in houses 50 feet away from each other. Or in townhouses where you can almost reach out and touch the next door from your door. You squeeze sinners together like that. You're going to have conflict and relationships are going to start to fray around the edges. That's why we got trouble. And unless I miss my guess, I'll bet every one of us here today, I don't care how nice you are, I don't care how sincere you are, I don't care how much you go out every day trying to live for God, doesn't make any difference, I'll bet every one of you here has a relationship with a husband, a wife, a relative, a roommate, somebody at school, a co-worker or a neighbor that's got some frayed edges. I bet you, you do. Now that doesn't surprise God, doesn't shock God. What God does actually in the Bible is He gives us some principles that are designed to help us rehabilitate relationships that are decaying, that are frayed around the edges. And I might add these principles, if we follow them, will not only help us to repair declining relationships, but if we follow them, they'll also take the good relationships we have and keep them strong and healthy and from going into decline. So they're good no matter what. I want to give them to you. There's four I want to give you in the time I got left. So let's go. Principle number one, if you've got a deteriorating relationship, here's how you can improve it. Principle number one is take the initiative. Engage. Take some action. I want you to turn in the New Testament with me, the very first book in the New Testament, the Gospel according to Matthew, to chapter 5. It's page 684 if you're using our copy of the Bible. Matthew chapter 5, page 684 if you would turn there with me. And I want you to see what Jesus says about this issue of taking initiative, engaging, getting proactive if you've got a relationship that's spraying around the edges. Look what Jesus says. Chapter 5, verse 23. Jesus said, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, if you are coming to worship God, if you are on your way to McLean Bible Church, if you're in the parking lot getting out of your automobile, if you're parked down at Langley High School having your coffee and donut waiting to get on the bus, and there, look, and there you remember that your brother or your sister has something against you, that you have a relationship that is fraying, Jesus said, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Put your donut and your coffee down. Get back in your automobile, Jesus said. First go and be reconciled to your brother or your sister and then come and worship God. Now, if we follow this verse as Christians to the letter, every church in America today would be empty because we would all be out trying to fix relationships we've got that are not in great shape. I don't want you to leave right now. You can go, you can do it later. But listen to what Jesus is saying. He is saying, you take the initiative. If you're a Christian and you're a follower of me and you've got a relationship that's in trouble, you take the initiative. Well, why should I have to take the initiative? I didn't do it. What's wrong with them? Why don't they have to do it? Why should I humble myself and go do something like that? I don't want to do something like that. Well, I'll answer the question. Why? Because Jesus told you to. That's simple enough. Jesus told you to. He said, no, you take the initiative. 
Friends, no deteriorating relationship ever gets better from inaction. All inaction does is allow attitudes to get stiffer and hearts to get harder and alienation to get deeper. That's all inaction does. You know, uh, I look, think of the story of David and Michael. And you know, we read the passage about her despising him in his heart. But do you think that that's the very first signal that woman ever sent to him? That there was problems in their relationship? You think that's the only smoke signal that ever went up? I don't think that. I think she's probably been sending signals for a long time that all's not well in Jerusalem land. And what did David do? He did nothing. He ignored it. And that's why he let her simmer and simmer and simmer till finally he got her to a boil and she exploded. And by then the relationship was beyond repair. Inaction doesn't help any relationship. If you got a relationship that's on the rocks, God's first piece of advice to you and me is to take initiative. Seek that person out. Talk about it. Say, we need to deal with this. Try to create an environment where you can begin to heal the relationship. And God says, you and I are to take the initiative. You know, there's some sounds in the world that are just positively ugly sounds. I don't know if you know any of these, but here's one of the ugliest sounds in the world. You know what that is? Yeah, you know. That's your friendly dentist drilling for China in your tooth. I don't like the dentist. Don't like to go to the dentist. Don't even like to think about the dentist. Don't like to pass the dentist's office in my car. I don't like the dentist. So I had this ache in my tooth uh, a while back, and I just figured, it was way back in one of these molars, and I just figured, oh, well, you know, if you don't do anything about it, it'll go away. So I waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited and waited. And it didn't go away. It started hurting more and hurting more and hurting more. And finally, I said, all right, all right, I'll go see the dentist. So I went to see the guy. The guy said, do you know how close you were to a root canal? He said, you were a matter of just fractions of a millimeter from a root canal. And he said, he said as a matter of fact, you may still need one. Well, now, there's a wonderful thought at Christmas. I may need a root canal. Wonderful thought. But he said to me, why didn't you act sooner? You think cavities just go away? Well, yeah, that'd be wonderful. Wouldn't it it be wonderful? Now, cavities just don't go away. And let me tell you something. The same is true about broken relationships. They just don't get better all by themselves. Relationships are like teeth. If they're decaying, you've got to do something about it. You don't just sit around and do nothing. And friends, if you've got a relationship that's falling apart, God says the best way to deal with it is to take action, decisive action, early action, humble yourself, go to that person and try to begin to heal it. Principle number two is deal with hurt. Deal with hurt. You know, we uh, were handing out some uh, flyers. We, we, in, in, we're trying to acquire National Wildlife property. And there was some information that had gone out in the contiguous neighborhood, Wolf Trap Woods and Wolf Trap Den, about our plans. It was just wrong. Just wrong. So we came up with a flyer that we wanted to distribute in those two neighborhoods to correct the misinformation that had been given out. And we sent some folks over and they distributed the flyer. Well, wonderful. But by mistake, I didn't know it was going to happen. By mistake, we also distributed them into one of the other surrounding neighborhoods a little ways away that had not gotten these misinformation flyers and there was no problem there. But, you know, somebody made a mistake and they handed the flyers out there. Well, the next meeting between us and the officers of, the, of, our, of all the homeowners associations around there, 
there, there was the president of this homeowners association, the one we mistakenly distributed this in, came in. And up to that point, he had been very friendly, very sympathetic with us. And as soon as he came in and I heard him begin to speak and I watched his body language, I knew, man, our relationship, something's happened. It has fallen apart. And I couldn't figure out what in the world happened between meetings. It didn't take long before he told me. Right in this meeting, he spoke up and he said, you know that flyer that you guys distributed in my neighborhood last week? He said, I want to tell you that I took deep personal offense to it. I feel like you questioned my personal integrity as the president of that homeowners group, and I am really upset with you guys. Friends, almost without exception, what starts the decline in any relationship is when one of the people in that relationship begins to take personal offense at somebody, something somebody else in the relationship said or something that they did. Now, sometimes the offense is real. Sometimes you really did do something wrong and you really did hurt somebody, maybe even on purpose. Sometimes it's just a mistake. Sometimes you didn't do it on purpose. Sometimes it's just a big misunderstanding. But I'll tell you what I've learned. I've learned over the years that accidental hurt is just as real to people as intentional hurt. It's all hurt. And the only way to ever achieve a U-turn in that relationship, the only way to do it, is to flush that hurt out that started the whole thing and deal with it biblically. That's why it's not a great idea to wait and wait and wait and wait, because then it gets covered over with layer after layer of other stuff, and you begin to even lose track of what started all this. You flush it out right away so you can deal with it. You remember Jacob and Esau, the story of Jacob and Esau in the Bible? Jacob stole his blessing, you know, from his brother, stole his birthright, lied to his father. And Esau was so mad at him, Esau was going to kill him. And Esau could have done it, too. I mean, Esau was a real physical specimen. If Esau lived today, Esau would be on WWF, Worldwide Wrestling. You know, he would be Hulk Esau. And he, this guy was a piece of work. And David, I mean, rather, Jacob was a mama's boy. He was a little mama's boy. It would have been a very short fight. So Jacob ran away. 20 years, he ran away, was gone. And 20 years later, God appeared to Jacob and said, I want you to go back and I want you to make up with your brother. And Jacob's like, what? He's going to kill me. God says, you're going to go back and make up with your brother. You ought to go back and read Genesis 33 and watch the way he came back. Because he knew the problem was he'd hurt his brother. He had offended his brother. He got a big gift together and sent it to his brother with a message of conciliation. And then when his brother finally showed up, read what it says. He got down on his knees and he bowed to the ground in front of his brother. He got up and walked a couple more steps, got down on the ground, bowed to the ground, got down, walked a couple of steps, got down, bowed on the ground. Seven times he did that, approaching his brother, humbling himself, saying he was wrong. You know what his brother did? His brother hugged him. And they became buddies for life. But you've got to deal with hurt. That was the problem. Jacob was smart enough to know you had to deal with the hurt that caused the problem in the first place. And you say, well, Lon, how do you resolve hurt biblically? Let me give you five quick principles. Number one, you humble yourself before the party you offended. You humble yourself. Number two, you validate their hurt. Whether you did it on purpose or not doesn't make any difference. You say, I know I hurt you. I understand I did that. You have every right to feel hurt. Whether it was on purpose or not. Number three. You accept responsibility for the hurt you caused. I did this. I'm not blaming anybody else. It was my fault. Number four, you ask the offended party, will you forgive me? You don't say something lame like, well, I apologize if it was anything I possibly did to hurt you. I apologize. What kind of, what a lame thing. You don't say something like that. You say, I did this. I was wrong and I need you to forgive me. Now, that's the way you resolve stuff. 
And then fifth and finally, you offer to repair whatever damage you did if it's possible to do that. It's not always possible to repair it, but if it's possible, you do it. Now, with this homeowner president, I called him the next day, finally made arrangements where I could talk to him personally. And I said to him, look, this was all a bad mistake. I didn't even know those things were going to your neighborhood. You never did anything wrong to us. I would never have called your integrity into question. I am so sorry. Would you please forgive me? And let me tell you what else I'll do. I will come to one of your homeowner meetings. You name it. I'll be there. And I will apologize to you in front of the whole homeowners meeting and tell them we were wrong. Or if you prefer, I'll write you a letter apologizing to you that you can send to every homeowner in your development. You just tell me what you want me to do because I want to make this right. You say, oh, so that's, that's great, Lon. You made everything right. Now you all are best buds, right? Well, not quite. Because it leads me to a third principle. The third principle is be patient. See, if you've got a relationship that's deteriorated and you want to rebuild it, you can do everything right. You can take action. You can resolve hurt. You can ask for forgiveness. You can make amends. But friends, it still takes time. It takes time to rebuild a relationship. Any of you guys here like onions? Onion lovers? All right. I like onions. Now, I got a friend of mine who eats them like apples. Now, I'm not talking Vidalias now. I'm talking those babies that make you cry over the sink. He peels these things and he eats them just like... I'm, I've seen him do it. And I've stood there and said, that's impressive. I mean, I, it is unbelievable to see this guy do this. And, and you know... Uh, amazing. But one thing I've noticed about onions, if you slice an onion and you open up, you ever notice that an onion grows one layer on top of another layer on top of another layer? I was trying to think this morning about any other vegetable I could think of that did that, and I couldn't think of one. But I, I, I did think about this. You know, relationships are like onions. They've got to grow one layer at a time. And many times we have a relationship that's broken and we want to fix it. Okay, I said I was sorry. Right now, let's forget about the whole thing. No, 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 no. You've got to rebuild relationships one layer at a time. If you've broken the trust between you and some other person, it takes time to rebuild that. And you build it with one layer of integrity on top of another layer of integrity on top of another layer of integrity. And friends, you can't do that in one day. Some of us get frustrated because we can't make everything right with just an I'm sorry. No, no, no. You've got you to understand it takes time to rebuild a relationship. Fourth principle and finally... Is not only be patient, but be a servant. Let me show you one other passage of Scripture and we're done. Philippians chapter 2. The letter Paul wrote the church in Philippi, chapter 2. If you're using our copy of the Bible, it's page 831. wonder if you turn there. Philippians chapter 2. And while you're turning, let me say this to you. Friends, servanthood is the grease that makes relationships work. When you and I are in a relationship... And that relationship is working. I can guarantee you what's happening. What's happening is at least one of the persons and probably two of the people in that relationship are people who are willing to humble themselves and put the needs of the other person in that relationship ahead of their own needs and meet the needs of that person and serve that person. And if you want to restore a broken relationship or if you want to keep a good relationship from breaking, then God says you be that person. You serve that other person. Look what it says here, Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. Paul says, uh, make my joy complete, verse 2, by being like-minded, by having the same love, by being one in spirit and purpose. He's calling these people to good relationships with one another. Verse 3, here's how you do it. 
Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Verse 4, each of you, if you want to make relationships work, should not look only on your own interests, but also on the interests of others. Servanthood is the grease that makes relationships work. I have to tell you, I live with one of the greatest servants I've ever met, my wife Brenda. My wife Brenda is the living embodiment, in my opinion, of what it means to put the needs of other people ahead of your own. Sometimes I even get irritated at her and mad at her because she gets so busy meeting the needs of other people that sometimes she just doesn't even take care of herself. Sometimes we'll sit down for dinner and she'll say at the dinner table, you know what? She'll snap her fingers and say, I forgot all about eating. This is the first time I've eaten all day. I forgot all about eating breakfast and lunch. And I'll sit there and stare at her with absolute incredulity. I mean, friends, I may miss a meal, but I never forget a meal. You understand what I'm saying? If I miss lunch, I know I missed it. Forgetting a meal? How can you forget lunch? Lunch is part of being an American. You've got to have lunch. This is my wife. But I'll tell you something, friends. My wife is the number one reason why our marriage works. She is the number one reason why our family works. She is the number one reason why every relationship she's in works. I've never met anybody who didn't like my wife. Now, I know lots of people don't like me, but I never met anybody who didn't like my wife. And the reason is she knows what it means to serve other people. She knows what it means to put other people's needs ahead of her own. And that's what makes relationships work. There's no magic whiffle dust that God drops on heaven, from heaven, on relationships at work. It's people working hard to put the needs of others ahead of their own. That's why relationships work. And the more, if you want to heal a relationship, let me tell you how to do it. You become a servant to that other person in that relationship. You begin putting their needs ahead of your needs and meeting their needs in sincerity as unto the Lord. And I'm telling you, you're on your way to healing a relationship because that's how you do it. You say, okay, Lon, I got the four principles. Here they are. Number one, you, 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 you take the initiative. You don't wait for the other person to do it. You go try to flush it out and bring some healing to a relationship. Number two, you resolve hurt biblically. Number three, you be patient. You let the onion grow one layer at a time. And number four, you be a servant to that other person. And you're telling me that if I will follow these four principles, God is telling me that I can make any relationship in the world work. Right? Wrong. No, God never said that. Listen to Romans 12, verse 18. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. But you see, God's a realist. He understands it takes two to tango. You've got to have two people that want to make a relationship work. And if you have somebody who doesn't want to make one work, no matter how hard you try, you can. No, you can follow all of these principles and there will be some people in the world that you still probably will not be able to make a relationship work with. But I'll tell you what, you follow these principles and you'll be able to make relationships work with 95% of the people you ever meet in this world, maybe a little more. These principles will work with virtually every relationship. And friends, what God is expecting from you and me is that if there is a relationship in our life that's not working, that we can say with authenticity and we can say with honesty, God, if it's not working, it's not because of me. I'm doing all the things you asked me to. As much as it lies with you, God says, be at peace with everyone. God, I'm doing everything I know how. I'm sorry they don't want to, but I'm doing everything I know how. And God says, that's all I can ask from you, and that's fine. I hope these principles will help. Relationships happen every day, friends, and we need the Word of God and its principles every day to help make them work. Let's pray together.
Lord Jesus, thanks for speaking to us today about what is without a doubt the most challenging part of our lives. Relationships. And Lord, virtually every one of us here, when I say deteriorating relationship, frayed relationship, can think of somebody at work, somebody at school, somebody in our family, somebody in our neighborhood, that that phrase qualifies for. Lord Jesus, help us live the way you, the way you tell us. As your followers, help us to take these principles and to live them out every day as best we know how. And Lord, if a relationship cannot be fixed and improved, may it genuinely be, not because we haven't done everything you've told us. Lord, may it genuinely be because that other person just doesn't want to. But God, may it never be able to be said of us that we didn't do all we could. Thank you for principles that work. Thank you for principles that will make relationships healthy and strong. Help us to implement these in our life for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.